Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Uh, hi, welcome. Welcome to the show, and sorry for the slight delay. It was a computer difficulty on my end, trying to get all this juicy stuff up in, in my computer. Jeez, I wonder what we can talk about today. Uh, uh, today, by the way, is uh, Thursday, the 4th, the 4th day of 2018, and uh, man, I'll tell you, Donald Trump has uh, hit, the, hit the new year running. Uh, I, I don't even know where to start. Uh, I'm assuming, and maybe I shouldn't, but I'm assuming that you have all read at least excerpts or heard other babblers talking about the stuff in this book that, uh, written by Michael Wolf, who spent apparently uh, much of the last year wandering around the West Wing, interviewing everybody and anybody and observing what was happening. And he has written this book, which I got to tell you, if you haven't gone to uh, New York Magazine, which has the largest excerpt, um, and it's it doesn't hit the newsstands as they say for another two days, I believe. But this uh, it, it's a page turner. It's he's a good writer. It reads like a it reads like a novel. Um, and it in no way to anybody who has been observing with horror uh, this man now the president and the people he surrounds himself with. There's nothing in here that really is shocking. <laughs> it's just the detail, the, the, the nuance, the interplay that he unveils that just makes it. And, and little, now people are quibbling about this guy is a known fabricator, blah, 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 blah. And um, I'm sure there are some things in here that will prove to be not exact quotations. There will be plenty of people saying, I didn't say that, because <laughs> much of what is quoted uh, is is the kind of thing, if you still worked in the White House, you would definitely say, I did not say that. Interestingly, uh, Steve Bannon has not said, I did not say that. Um, so this is just fascinating stuff. The thing I found most fascinating and explains to me, uh, what we were all trying to figure out before the election was many of us felt that you know, there's no way Trump's going to win, but how and how he didn't expect to win and wouldn't it be a riot if he did win or wouldn't it shock the hell out of him and, 
as it turns out, all that was true. He had no no intention of winning. Um, no intention of winning. And that at least dovetails uh, really nicely with the way a lot of us were thinking. That this, of course, was one of his usual look at me, look at me, look at me ego trips to be uh, seen as one of the most important people in the world. And then once he lost, uh, to have the name recognition, the power, the even stronger brand to catapult him into a position to be the most powerful one of the most powerful people in the world, a la Rupert Murdoch, who he adulates. I don't know if that's a word. Um, <laughs> but I'll, let me, I mean, if you haven't read the thing, let me, let me read this <coughs> one little thing about right before the election and it shows what this what these ne'er-do-wells were up to what these self-serving creeps who now run our government were up to their game was to up the Trump brand and then to cash in cash in big time Big time. I I hate to do this, but I'm I'm just going to, in case you haven't read it yourself, just let me read this one little part. On the afternoon of November 8th, 2016, Kellyanne Conway settled into her glass office at Trump Tower. Right up until the last weeks of the race, the campaign headquarters had remained a listless place. All that seemed to dis all that seemed to distinguish it from a corporate back office were a few posters on the walls with right wing slogans. Conway, the campaign manager, the campaign's manager. My God, did he go through a lot of campaign managers? I forgot she was his campaign manager. Conway, the campaign campaign's manager was in a remarkably buoyant mood considering she was about to experience a resounding if not cataclysmic defeat donald trump would lose the election of this she was sure but he would quite possibly hold the defeat to under six points and that was a substantial victory as for the looming defeat itself she shrugged it off because it was Reince Priebus's fault, not hers. She had spent a good part of the day calling friends and allies in the political world and blaming Priebus, the chairman of the Republican National Committee. Now she briefed some of the television producers and anchors whom she had been carefully courting since joining the campaign, and with whom she had been actively interviewing in the last few weeks to land a permanent on-air job after the election. 
Even though the numbers in a few key states had appeared to be changing to Trump's advantage, neither Conway nor Trump himself nor his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, the effective head of the campaign, wavered in their certainty that this unexpected adventure they were on would soon be over. Not only would Trump not be president, almost everyone in the campaign agreed he should probably not be. Conveniently, the former conviction meant nobody had to deal with the latter issue. In other words, the people on his campaign did not think for a minute he would be president, did not think for a minute he should be president, and because they knew he wouldn't win, they didn't bother with the fact that they were trying to elect a man who was totally incompetent. As the campaign came to an end, Trump himself was sanguine. His ultimate goal, after all, had never been to win. And here's a quote. I can be the most famous man in the world, he had told his, his aide, excuse me, Sam Nunberg, at the outset of the race. His longtime friend Roger Ailes, the former head of Fox News, liked to say that if you want a career in television, first run for president. Now Trump, encouraged by Ailes, was floating rumors about a Trump network. Remember that? It was a great future. He would come out of this campaign, Trump assured Ailes, with a far more powerful brand and untold opportunities. This is bigger than I ever dreamed of, he told Ailes a week before the election. I don't think about losing because it isn't losing. We've totally won. And I have little doubt that on election night, they all sat there shocked, stunned, frightened, freaked, because their little plan had gone awry. He'd won. That was not their intent either. He had assured Melania, don't worry, don't worry, because she didn't want, don't worry. It's a business thing I'm doing here, Okay. I'm up in my profile. I'm going to be the most famous man in the world. Don't worry. I don't want to be the president either. I'm going to be bigger than the president. Wow. Wow. It explains why, he, well, it explains a lot. Now, I have little doubt, absolutely no doubt whatsoever that that is absolutely true. Absolutely true. It's sort of like I, I recall us talking in the days uh, before the campaign that there were two stunned men and one determined woman that we were watching in the race. Right? The two stunned men were guys who, for different reasons, but somewhat overlapping reasons, had gotten into the race to up their stature and to get more power. Neither for a minute thought they would be 
the president. I don't think either thought they could be the nominee of their party. One of them was right, Bernie Sanders. The other <laughs> was wrong. Because he did become the nominee. And Bernie came close. This is an unbelievable story. As we've said for over a year now, you can't make it up. The, all the um, all the superlatives that Donald Trump throws around uh, have joined all other superlatives in the uh, language uh, by becoming essentially meaningless. the astonishment that we all feel, the disbelief we all feel, it turns out was shared by Donald Trump and his campaign. It wasn't their game plan. Somebody suggested it's like that wonderful play and movie, The Producers. <laughs> right? You know the play, The Producers? Where the idea was to put on a, a musical so ridiculously awful so i mean just make a musical designed to fail because it was so bad and then these guys were going to make a whole bunch of money because they because of accounting shenanigans and they made the musical it was beyond belief bad so bad that it became a hit and so their plan blew up in their faces. They were appearing to want to do one thing while they were really planning another outcome. Failure. And that's what Trump wanted to. It was his nightmare, I bet. that he. This may explain, actually, the sort of dissolution that people are seeing in him. Uh, that he is in a place that he never wanted to be. And he's in over his head. And he's paranoid. He trusts nobody. There is, a, I mean, this guy is a dangerous man. And reading any of this stuff uh, tells you that again and again and again. Uh, over and over, people in uh, that Wolf hears or talks to uh, describe Donald Trump with contempt. The people around him. We we know uh, that his own Secretary of State called him a moron. I believe his National Security Advisor didn't McMaster say something else, an idiot, or something to that effect. Um, this guy goes so far, Wolf goes so far as to suggest that not only doesn't he read, and we know he doesn't read, he only sits in front of his TV. This is a president who doesn't read. He might sort of skim a page or two, but he has no ability to 
focus on anything. We've been told that over and over again. Imagine this. And imagine this is the President of the United States. I think this is going to, I mean, I, we've said this before, this has to be the beginning of the end. And I mentioned yesterday, I think the 25th Amendment is going to come into play. I really do. It turns out that a number of senators and members, other members of Congress, I believe one Republican senator, uh, anonymous, uh, met with a Yale psychiatrist recently who warned them about what she perceived as the disintegration of Trump's intellectual and emotional health and how dangerous that was. So I, as I said yesterday, I got to believe there are conversations. You've got to believe there are conversations going on at uh, the highest levels, uh, both in Congress and in the president's own cabinet, of how to get him out of there because he is truly a danger to us all and a danger to the world. There is no doubt about it. We have a call. Hello, caller. Hi. 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 Hey, hey Lynn, um, one thing you could say about Bannon, he, I don't agree with nothing, you know, I don't agree with him, but I do think he's not, a, he's not an idiot. He's a pretty smart man, and I think that this money laundering he mentioned, I think that I think that hits the nail on the head. I think there is something yeah. there. No, and, and I have said come down to that's right. It's going to come down. They're going to get if they want to. Miller or Mueller, whatever his name is, is going to get him. Um, and if not Mueller, then the New York Attorney General Snyderman, right? They will right. get him and Kushner and all the other slime and scum on their business dealings, on their money laundering, on their, uh, their schemes and their scams, which violate the law. And, and him saying that they asked him to go in that meeting, he said he, he couldn't because he's already is insane. He used to be, it was a naval officer. I believe that happened. I truly believe he said, what, are you crazy? And he knew this was going on, and I do think people, other people do know. And Trump knew. The whole outfit knew. I mean, it's just no, you don't act so guilty when you don't have anything to hide. And it just shows that that's what he has, hidden something. And it goes to the money. It will. I mean, I, that is what will bring him down. And there's no way he lasts another three years. There's no way. No. No way. One way or the other. Is, and, and I will be proved right that he will not serve a full term. Good. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye. 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 And it's f interesting, too, that Flynn, who was, a, you recall, his national, his foreign policy advisor or something on the campaign 
he had uh, been told by people, you know, it wasn't too smart of you to accept that 25,000 from the Russians. If you're going to, I mean, that could be a problem. He said, nah, it'll only be a problem if we win. Flynn also did not think they were going to win. These are all a bunch of vultures, parasites, and uh, double-dealing crooks <laughs> running a scam. And they ran it a little too well. Strangely, what brought them down, meaning what got them the win, was the buffoon they'd tied themselves to, was Donald Trump, whose apprentice, television, vulgar, tough, persona incredibly resonated with uh, tens of millions of Americans. Who knew? This is something where Trump could say, I was huge, huge. They love me. They did. More than he ever could have thought uh, Trump is a frightening character do you know how many books are going to be written I mean I think it might end up outdoing the number of books written on like FDR or Winston Churchill or Lincoln even because this book Whatever, if it has to do with this story, is so <laughs> unbelievable, so rich with all of the horror of the most salacious novel somebody could write. Horror is not the right word. I don't know. Trump will, in some respects, get everything he wanted. He will be one of the most famous people in world history. I bet. Right up there with Genghis Khan. I mean, his name will be remembered like <laughs> Pontius Pilate, like Nero. His name will resonate throughout whatever's left of human history. And I guess for a narcissist like him, that might be enough. Might be an answer to his dreams. But of course it's our nightmare. Oh, Henry writes, Bannon was on Breitbart Radio today backpedaling and said, quote, nothing will ever come between us and President Trump and his agenda. And adding that, quote, we're tight on this agenda as we've ever been. The President of the United States is a great man and I support him day in and day out. 
we're going to have to redefine what a like a nest of vultures is. We're going to have to redefine. I mean, Machiavelli would swoon at this crowd. It, 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 these guys might be a conglomeration of some of the most evil, unprincipled, despicable human beings on the face of this earth. Henry said, my problem with this book is I've never trusted Bannon, and as much as I'd like to believe some of these juicy details, can't, I can't believe what he's written, especially when he's so quick to backpedal. Well, he didn't write it. He's quoted in the book. He's quoted in the book. Um, no, these are men who regularly betray each other. That's what they do. That's how they live. We were talking yesterday about Confucius, Confucianism, Confucius, and now I see where that the caller was having trouble with that. This sense of a a culture that that values uh, fealty and respect for and honor. And how, in contrast, that has nothing to do with actually American culture. That American culture, and you'd be hard to argue otherwise, has to do with self-interest. And this is, and, and in that regard, I'll repeat what I said yesterday. I think, in some ways, Donald Trump is exactly the president this country deserves. He is a grotesque cartoon image of what our culture and our national ethos has devolved to. Narcissism, self-interest, vulgarity, personal enrichment. I don't know. Now, Delina says, the fact that Trump's persona and the character he plays resonated with millions of people has always scared me more than Trump himself. I am totally with you there. And I, I, but that's exactly what I was just saying. There are easily 40% of Americans who totally buy in to this ethos that Trump represents, although tying any ethos to Donald Trump seems ridiculous. But this is what they, I agree, the fact that that many Americans were willing to back this charlatan and truly wanted to just blow the whole thing up uh, shows a level of self-indulgence that should give all of us pause. 
I mean, a country doesn't exist if there's not a, some shared value. A country now. Some countries exist because uh, everybody is related to each other in some way, but that's not true of the United States of America. It's a very different kind of a country. This was a country that was created out of many different people. So, if we don't agree on what it is that binds us as a people, then I don't see why, we, I don't think we have a country. And I think what Trump's victory and the continued support he, he has uh, from one of the two major parties, we really only have two in this country, shows that our country is collapsing in some way it still I guess is salvageable but the the harm that he and those who elected him and those who continue to aid and abet him have done and continue to do is as I said I think potentially fatal Um, Steve Bannon, I'm being told, was openly handicapping a 33.3% chance of impeachment. When was he doing this? In, in the book. So in the book, Bannon is saying, all right, I suppose there's about a third of a chance that he'll get impeached, a third of a chance he'll resign uh, because the 25th Amendment's coming at him, and a a one-third of a chance that he might limp to the finish line on the strength of liberal arrogance and weakness. That was for Bannon. I don't think he's finishing. I really don't. I don't see how. Um... There was a, what is this? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think this might be some comic relief. I know I could use a little. Um, Yeah, this is from uh, Dana Milbank, uh, who was, as we all were, just blown away by the juvenile back and forth uh, between the President of the United States and uh, the dear leader of uh, North Korea. And he writes his whole column in the persona of a schoolyard bully because that's what we've got as President and that's who North Korea has also. And then he imagines if Trump were to keep this tone when he does the State of the Union address, which, by the way, will be coming up. Imagine that. Imagine the State of the Union address. 
But Milbank has written one for him. <clears throat> my fellow Americans, including all of my enemies and haters, you idiot holes, there are those who say that I am unfit to hold this office and who are calling for my impeachment. But what they do not realize is this. I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Tag, no tag backs. Yes, Democrat jerkweeds kept us from repealing Obamacare, but we passed a huge tax cut for the rich. In your face. And after years of nothing from President Wimpy McSissy Pants, I told ISIS, talk to the hand, because the face ain't listening. Let the word go forth to all fatheads who say my administration stinks of corruption. He who smelt it, dealt it. Let all dog-breath goobers who say I am dragging down Republicans know this. I can't hear you. And let everybody who thinks me a failure hear this. I know you, I know you are, but what am I? Your face is a failure. The state of my union is bigger and more powerful than the state of your union. And your mama knows it. <clears throat> you know, if he said that, <laughs> would we even blink anymore? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Um. Oh, where he is in between. Okay. Uh, now, Wolf, the author of the book, who, by the way, Trump's uh, personal attorneys have also sent a cease and desist order to the publishers. Because the book is not out yet. I think its publishing date is the 7th or the 9th? The 9th. And I, I guess it's Holt that's publishing it. And uh, the president's attorneys are trying to stop the publication of the book. I mean, there, there's, ain't no way. Ain't no way that's going to happen. So Wolf, I guess, wrote a, um, this is an essay he wrote, a column for the Hollywood Reporter. This is the guy who wrote the book. Um, and it was headlined, You Can't Make This Shit Up, My Year Inside Trump's Insane White House. Let me read it with you. Have you read it? Is it good? I interviewed Donald Trump for The Hollywood Reporter in June 2016, and he seemed to have liked or not disliked or not disliked the piece I wrote. Aha. Uh -huh. Great cover, his press assistant, Hope Hicks, emailed me after it came out. It was a picture of a belligerent Trump in mirrored sunglasses. After the election, I proposed to him that I come to the White House 
and report an inside story for later publication, journalistically as a fly on the wall, which he seemed to misconstrue as a request for a job. No, I said, I, I just like to watch and write a book. A book, he responded, losing interest. I hear a lot of people want to write books, he added, clearly not understanding why anybody would. Do you know Ed Klein, author of several virulently anti-Hillary books? Great guy. I think he should write the book about me. But sure, Trump seemed to say, knock yourself out. So he he's the one who let the guy in. I've heard people freaking out on cable news today of what is how it shows how dysfunctional the White House is that anyone would have okayed this guy hanging around as he did with such access. But it turns out it was Trump himself. Yeah, go ahead. Wolf goes on saying, since the new White House was often uncertain about what the president meant or did not mean in any given utterance, his non-disapproval became a kind of passport for me to hang around. Checking in each week at the Hay Adams Hotel, making appointments with various senior staffers who put my name in the system, and then wandering across the street to the White House and plunking myself down day after day on a West Wing couch. The West Wing is configured in such a way that the anteroom is quite a thoroughfare. Everyone passes by. Assistants, young women in the Trump uniform of short skirts, high boots, long and loose hair, as well as situation comedy proximity. All the new stars of the show, Steve Bannon, Kellyanne Conway, Reince Priebus, Sean Spicer, Jared Kushner, Mike Pence, Gary Cohn, Michael Flynn, and after Flynn's abrupt departure less than a month into the job for his involvement in the Russia affair, his replacement, H.R. McMaster, all neatly accessible. The nature of the comedy, it was soon clear, was that there was a group of ambitious men and women who had reached the pinnacle of power, a high-ranking White House appointment, with the punchline that Donald Trump was the president. Their estimable accomplishment of getting to the white West Wing risked at, risked at any moment becoming farce. The surreal sense of the Trump presidency was being lived as intensely inside the White House as out. Trump was, for the people closest to him, the ultimate enigma. He had been elected president. That threw the eye of the needle feet, but obviously he was yet Trump. Indeed, he seemed as confused as anyone to find himself in the White House, even attempting to barricade himself into his bedroom with his own lock over the protests of the Secret Service. Reigning over all of this was Trump, enigma, cipher, and disruptor. How to get along with Trump, who veered between a kind of blissed-out pleasure of being in the Oval Office and a deep childish, childish frustration that he couldn't have what he wanted. 
Here was a man singularly focused on his own needs for instant gratification, be that a hamburger, a segment on Fox and Friends, or an Oval Office photo op. I want to win! I want to win! Where's my win? He would regularly declaim. He was, in words, used by almost every member of the senior staff on repeated occasions like a child. A chronic naysayer, Trump himself stoked constant discord with his daily after-dinner phone calls to his billionaire friends about the disloyalty and incompetence around him. His billionaire friends then shared this with their billionaire friends, creating the endless leaks which the president so furiously railed against. Okay, that's not the whole thing. That's some of it. Wow. There. Man, I'll tell you, Holt, if they're a publicly traded uh, company, I'd buy some stock right now because this book, <laughs> this book is, wow, going to go off the charts. Off the charts. Um, let me see what else you guys got. I got so much coming in here, I can't even... Uh, Barbara sends me, you can't make this shit up. Sean Spicer, soon to be portrayed as the most hapless man in America, muttered to himself after his tortured press briefing on the first day of the new administration when he was called to justify the president's inaugural crowd numbers. And soon enough, he adopted this as a personal mantra. You can't make this shit up. Kellyanne Conway, who would put a finger gun to her head in private about Trump's public comments, continued to mount an implacable defense of him on cable television until she was pulled off the air by others in the White House who, however much the president enjoyed her, found her militancy idiotic. Even Ivanka and Jared regarded Conway's defenses as cringeworthy. Oh, dear. And that's from the Hollywood Reporter piece he did. Uh, Mark says, I heard a foreign policy expert on the radio this morning. He described Trump's, Trump's plan for dealing with North Korea a strategic ambu ambiguity. Nothing he does is strategic. Have we not figured that out? There's no brilliance behind this. There's no... Chaos theory, no, uh, you know, the madman thing that Nixon uh, might have pulled. Uh, I can remember when this was known as, oh, the ambiguous, strategic ambiguity. Mark says, I can remember when that was known as not having any idea of what you're doing. <laughs> yes, and our policy is strategic ambiguity. And now Trump is a fan of Iranian protesters. I wonder if they know they're not welcome to come to America. It's beyond belief. Finally, I'm glad Christmas ads are over until next year. It makes me crazy to see Santa portrayed as a simpleton. How are kids supposed to be good when they see Santa as a moron? How is Santa shown as a moron? I don't know. As a kid, I was terrified of him. Because I mean, he didn't come to my house. But I knew he flew around in some damn thing with reindeer, and it just creeped me out. 
I remember Christmas Eve lying on, in my little bed. And I had a little window over it. And just like so afraid he'd like jingle by or something. Creep me out. Brian says, someone once said it's the economy, stupid. Trump would have been gone already if the damn stock market wasn't going up a thousand points every five weeks. We need a crash to get him out. I, I don't think so. I'm making a killing in my 401k, but I'd be willing to lose half of it for him to be gone. My life is more important to me than money. What pisses me off is that these Republicans, and this is the worst, I mean, but W. Bush, Nixon, I mean, I'm so sick and tired of Republicans coming into office, having eight years, and creating such a mess, either the economic mess or mired in wars. And then a Demo- Then the people say, oh, geez, this is awful. Look where we are. I guess we should elect a Democrat. And then they elect a Democrat. And the Democrats come in. And the only thing they have time to do is clean up the mess. And then after eight years, our brilliant citizens forget what happens when you elect Republicans. And so they elect Republicans again. And they make a huge, huge mess. And Democrats come in and sweep up. Democrats don't get much time or end up with the luxury of any money to advance a progressive agenda once they're in. They just end up picking up the pieces. And that's what a next Democratic president will do, too. And eight years ain't going to be enough time to do it. Roger writes, Good morning. I've been away for a while. I just needed a break from reality. Oh, me too. And uh, more on that later, by the way. And enjoy the holidays without inflicting alcohol poisoning. (laughs) I'm back and will try to exercise every time I crave or need a drink, which may lead to injury or becoming the first 58-year-old in the 2020 Summer Olympics. I wouldn't count on it, Roger. I read this morning that many Republican congressmen don't plan on running again. Yeah, they are dropping. Man, they're dropping like flies, aren't they? As they've become so disgusted at what the political environment has become. Scares me. That's not what they say scares me as to who will replace them. That is true. I think we're done. Welcome to the Hunger Games. I need a beer. Oops, I mean ten (laughs) push-ups. Oh, God, God, God. You know that, well, all right, I just, sorry. 
Here's another thing for some comic relief, okay? Um, name the two states where, well, one especially, where you're not allowed to pump your own gas. There's one where you just can't, and there's another where mostly you can't. You know that? Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable in this day and age that there are two states that have... You're a smart cookie there, Mr. Stephen. New Jersey and Oregon. And what happened recently is that Oregon decided to loosen up the law. And they now allow people in rural counties to pump their own gas. And the reason is that there might be just one gas station in a uh, you know in a area before you get you know in an area where there's nothing except trees and stuff. Uh, and so for the person who owns that gas station, it's a real burden to have to man it 24 hours a day lest <coughs> some out-of-gas person wander by and need their tank filled because you have to have an employee who fills the tank. And so, under a law which took effect Monday, Gas stations and counties with a population of less than 40,000 are now allowed to have self-service pumps. Uh, there are also some other counties that you can pump your own gas. But uh, three other rural counties, you can pump your own gas only between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. I mean, what the hell? thought the guys in Harrisburg were out of their minds. Well, they are. So this started up on Monday and the TV stations went out to interview people pumping their own gas for the first time. And here's some of what they encountered. One woman. I don't even know how to pump gas. I'm 62. I'm a native Oregonian. I say, no thanks, I don't like to smell like gasoline. Uh, <clears throat> here's another woman. No, I refuse. Disabled, seniors, people with young children in the car, we need help. Not to mention getting out of your car with transients around and not feeling safe. This is a very, very bad idea. Here's another one. I've lived in this state all my life and I refuse to pump my own gas. This is a service only qualified people should perform. <laughs> I will literally park at the pump and wait until someone pumps my gas. Well, apparently... People on Twitter are like just savaging, savaging 
uh, Oregonians uh, today. Here's one. It's official. Oregon is full of mentally defective, full-grown children and capable of the most mundane tasks. Uh, actually, I mean, still almost everywhere in Oregon, you don't have to if you don't want to. So there you have it. Uh, a columnist for the Oregonian slammed the Internet for poking fun and making the state look like either a collection of feeble-handed troglodytes too dumb or lazy to do the deed themselves <coughs> or an assemblage of elitists who turn their noses up at the plebeian pump. Uh, but anyway, that's it. Oregon and New Jersey still the only two states that require gas stations. So what is the lobby? That I mean, it has to be a lobby that is the lobby gas. Why would gas gas stations wouldn't want to have to employ people if you self pump? So who is the who's the lobby that manages? I don't. I really don't get it. I mean, I, every time they try to change the state store system here, I understand who that lobby is because the state stores employ a, a lot of people, but these are all independent. I don't get it. But whatever the lobby is, it's pretty damn uh, forceful, especially in New Jersey, because I don't think New Jersey has any of these kinds of, uh, it's a more populous state, I guess. Uh, Chuck's got some breaking news for me. CNN is saying Sessions is... Oh, dear. Oh, God. Sessions is rescinding Obama-era policies of non-interference with marijuana-friendly state laws. In other words, Sessions Department of Justice is not going to look the other way when California, when other states, uh, Colorado... Oregon, I think, um, have uh, legal marijuana. So Sessions, who thinks marijuana is like the worst thing that ever happened, when the policies are rescinded, Sessions is going to issue new guidance. And while many states have decriminalized pot, the drug is still illegal under federal law. But Obama's policies at least prevented the feds from interfering with the state pot laws. Rescinding Obama's policies will create a conflict between state and federal law. And what's funny is it's people like Sessions who, when it was about race, were all about states' rights. States' rights. States get to do whatever they want to do. You feds can't tell us what to do. And now that he's in the federal government, screw states' rights because he wants the feds to move in and tell states who've decided to do one thing because their legally elected representatives have decided he's going to try to stop it. Incredible. Bree writes, I don't own a car, haven't in 12 years, but I have driven around with friends. Here in Dubai, the gas stations all have gas pumpers. 
I guess people could pump their own, but they just don't. And when you go to the mall, you can have your car washed for about 10 to 15 bucks. Well, yeah. Uh, okay, so New Jersey banned uh, self-service uh, since 1949. Um some say the law was rooted in corruption. They pretend it's about safety. There are also worries that young and experienced drivers run into trouble when visiting neighboring states and forced to pump their own for the first time. Oh, come on. They say it's thousands of jobs at stake. It's the gas pumpers. But the gas pumpers don't have a union. I mean... It's a lowly job. So you, you think gas pumpers are organized? That can't be the kind of lobby that would... It makes no sense to me. It makes... Um, it just makes no sense. But, you know, these days, nothing makes <laughs> any sense anymore. <laughs> Dorothea says, can you imagine what this State of the Union speech will be like? Well, I mean, we know what it'll be like. It'll be grandiose. It'll be about, look what all this that I've done. The tax law. He'll take credit for everything. Anything good that has happened. What I look forward to is the deportment, is that the right word, of the Congress people in attendance. Um, you know, these States of the Union speech have that, you know, everybody cheers on one end and everybody sits sullen on the other and up and down and up and down and up and down. There is such extraordinary animosity now. And the guy who has helped to bring it to the level it is um, at the helm, standing there, I can't imagine. But isn't that usually around January 20th or something, I think? I don't know. Coming up. Well, okay. I guess our time is up. Um, if you haven't read what is the excerpts available uh, on this Wolf book, uh, they're easy enough to find <laughs> uh, on the Internet and uh, treat yourself. It is real page-turner. Frightening page turner. God bless us one and all. See you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.